Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 2nd, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. muscle and bones, and a lot of our mass is actually water. Ultimately, you'd probably tell me we're made up of cells. And you'd mostly be right. Except you forgot to mention the microbes. That's right, a whopping 90% of cells in our body are microbes. Can you believe that? We'll tell you more about it later. In the meantime, we're delving into the world of pre- and probiotics. Basically, the science of making sure the helpful microbes that live in our body are healthy and happy. We talk to three people in the field of probiotics and learn all about it. This podcast has been made possible by an educational grant from the Danon Company, working to bring health through food to people everywhere. Danon is a leader in probiotic foods worldwide. I learned that yogurt had live cultures in it around the age of seven. I was horrified, to say the least, until my mother thoughtfully reassured me that these were no different from the live cultures already living in my tiny stomach, which only produced more horror. Unknown to me at the time, these microbes living in my stomach and intestines are actually vital to my digestive and immunal health, so much so that some scientists are researching how we can bolster our bellies against harm and keep the helpful microbes happy. These scientists are in the field of pre- and probiotics. Meet Mary Ellen Sanders. She was trained in food microbiology and now works as a consultant to companies interested in adding probiotics to their products. Well, a probiotic is a live microorganism that is used for its health benefits, and it's a specifically identified strain of of a bacterium typically, but also yeast have, have been used that are isolated and characterized and then used primarily as either dietary supplements or ingredients in foods and administered typically orally back to people for a health benefit. So in order to be considered probiotic, the bacteria must be alive. They must also have a measurable benefit in the body, like aiding digestion, for instance, and they needn't be restricted to food applications or oral delivery. Some probiotics may be applied topically to skin, for instance. One of the reasons that we might expect a live microorganism to have an impact on human health, or animal health for that matter, is the fact that we actually have evolved as organisms in uh, an incredible symbiotic relationship with, with a very large number and diversity of microbes. So we have, as part of our humanness walking around, a a large complement of microbes that are associated with us from birth. So when we're in utero, we are sterile. We don't have any microbes associated with us. But during the birthing process, we begin the colonization process. And those microbes that are associated with us, you know, develop a, a symbiotic relationship with us and, in fact, do a lot for how our physiology develops. In fact... A large colonization, as Sanders puts it, might be an understatement. It's estimated that more than 90% of the cells in our bodies are actually microbes. Most of these microbes make their home in our digestive tract, and grown humans have about one kilogram of bacteria in our guts. What's more, human adults excrete their own weight in fecal bacteria every year. 
in case you were wondering. What all this means is that our bodies rely on these good microbes to help us digest food and fight off infections. Sanders says probiotics have shown to directly impact some of these key functions in a helpful way. It can start right away with mechanisms such as, you know, the, the ability to sort of impact possible negative activities of certain types of microbes that may be associated with us. For example, pathogens that might want to adhere to our epithelial cells and cause an infection might be interfered with by a probiotic. So that's one mechanism. Probiotics have also been shown to interact with certain types of immune cells in our body. And and we know that our colonizing microbes are really important to normal immune system development. Well, when you add probiotics to the system, it seems like we can get an additional edge on that. And they can, for example, both improve the ability of us to respond to infections and, and you know, thereby preventing these infections or at least decreasing severity or duration, or they can also seem to help with um, downregulating the, the other aspect of the immune system, which would be sort of an over-responsive immune system with inflammation and or allergic-type expressions. So there's immune systems, and then there's impact on, on epithelial cells, certain types of physiology of, of the cells that line our intestine. You know, there have been effects that have been shown relative to improving barrier effect so that the whole concept of leaky gut isn't as common, you know, that your, your barrier activity of your intestinal tract is, is sort of bolstered by the presence of these microbes. Most of us are probably best familiar with probiotics when it comes to yogurt. Already containing live cultures, yogurt has become the most obvious vehicle for getting probiotics into our bodies. But Sanders points out yogurt isn't the only delivery method. By and large, the most common way of getting a probiotic is orally. And and I would also comment that the term probiotic, for example, in Europe is used exclusively for food-type deliveries. So there are some country-to-country or region-to-region differences in terms of how the concept of probiotics is applied. But from a scientific point of view, my perspective is, is that the concept of probiotics really is sort of a broad umbrella term that includes as you mentioned before, applications for both humans and animals, for example, and it includes both oral applications as well as non-oral applications. And some examples of of non-oral applications might be, um, you know, intravaginal for coping with vaginal infections, or there's research that's, that's very, very early in development right now, but certain types of topical uses on your skin use for, for certain types of probiotics. So I think it's not with um, outside the realm of possibility that, that just consuming them is, is ultimately going to be only one way to be able to get probiotics or these external beneficial bacteria to, to sort of help with certain health endpoints. Plenty of research has been published on the positive effects of probiotics, but a lot is still unknown. Sanders helps companies interested in probiotics figure out how to tackle the science. Typically what happens in the commercial world is that you have companies that are interested in developing a product. What you really need to do is decide what type of health parameter you want to influence. And so then you design your research to try to determine whether or not the microbe that you're targeting or you're using as a probiotic actually is effective at having an impact on that specific target. Very commonly in the probiotic arena, the the two big target areas in general are immune function and some type of an impact on, on digestive function as well. So how does a big company actually put probiotics on the market? To find out, we talked to Philippe Karadak. He's in charge of regulatory and corporate affairs for Danon in North America. If you're not sure who Danon is, check the yogurt aisle in your local grocery store. 
I talked to Karadak about some of the challenges a company like Dannon faces when trying to create and market food with probiotics. A probiotic culture will provide a benefit, but that benefit is only come, you know, it can only be a strain specific. You need to demonstrate that the specific strain that you're using, the specific type of bacteria that you're using, but also the very, very specific, that one bacteria, part of that family of bacteria, is providing the benefit. So I think it's an important concept. It's not like fiber in general, for example, which would be uh, a sort of a generic kind of thing. So first and foremost, very important, uh, especially from a scientific perspective, to, to understand that the benefit of a probiotic culture is strain-specific. The, the second part, you really have to, to think about the fact that we are saying there is a benefit, we need the science to prove that there is a benefit and to substantiate that benefit. So um, that's, that's really important, and it's really important that we have that science, that strong science, and especially that the science that be developed using methods that are, that, that are well-recognized. Uh, and that's another big challenge for the scientific community especially. But, you know, at the end of the day, we also know that uh, the consumers are the ultimate judge of everything. First of all, do they, do, they, do they like the taste and the texture of the product? If they don't, believe me, they will not buy the product, no matter what benefit they're seeking. Dannon has its own team of scientists working on its products. We actually have over 1,000 people that are colleagues. You know, they work for our company throughout the world. They are in research and development. About 600 scientists there and about uh, 400 people who develop products specifically. So, and, and what do they do? I mean, what are their specialties? Well, obviously, you know, first and foremost, this is a food. So we need to talk about nutrition. We have nutrition specialists. We are people who focus on, uh, on biology, on microbiology, because obviously we're talking about cultures and, and, mi- and microorganisms that uh, need to grow. We're talking about the benefits, and therefore we have experts in uh, physiology, uh, in gastroenterology, in pediatrics, in immunology, and, and obviously... Uh, That goes without saying, the the food has to be safe. So we have food safety specialists. Now, while it's a great thing that companies like Dannon are concerned about safe food, sometimes it's impossible for us to avoid an unwanted case of food poisoning. But interestingly enough, scientists believe that with the right combination of probiotics and something called prebiotics, we can actually create a defense against food poisoning by arming our stomachs with good microbes. Meet Glenn Gibson. He's a scientist at the University of Reading in the UK and has a pretty smelly lab. No, I'm serious. Gibson's lab has created working models of our guts that can go through the full digestive process, meaning they put undigested food in one end and it comes out the other end in, well, the form of poop. With these models, Gibson and his team can study the effects of probiotics when it comes to digestion. But their main area of research is prebiotics. Ourselves and many other groups are thinking about ways in which the diet can be fortified or changed to to boost the activities of these friendly positive bacteria at the expense of ones which are more damaging. This is is inside the gut. Now a probiotic approach would be to use the living bacteria themselves. A prebiotic approach would be to use foods for these positive bacteria. So if you think of it as, you know, one of my 
colleagues here who's in, in the media area once said to me, it's a bit like a, a garden which is full of roses and weeds, and what you want to do is increase the number of roses. Now, if you were to use a probiotic approach in that context, you'd plant more roses. If you were to use a prebiotic, you'd fertilize to grow the roses and decrease the weeds. And it's the same in the gut. So the prebiotic is the food for the friendly flora. Probiotic is actually the friendly flora itself. So then my next question is, what exactly do friendly flora like to eat? They like to eat things called oligosaccharides, which are carbohydrate. You know, the human diet has carbohydrate in it, it has protein in it, it has vitamin in it, it has lipids in it, those things we know about. And oligosaccharides are a group of carbohydrates. Again, when you hear the, the, the word carbohydrate, you immediately think sugar. But it isn't, you know, because sugar is absorbed in the body. There are certain groups of carbohydrates which are not absorbed by the body, but instead are broken down by the flora or the bacteria, if you like. So examples of these types of carbohydrate are is dietary fiber, starch, things that are present in cereals and fruits and veg. And oligosaccharides are a, a type of a dietary fiber which have a very selective effect towards the positive flora components. So if you take particular types of oligosaccharides in your diet, they get through into the gut, mainly the lower bowel, which is the large intestine where most of the bacteria reside. And they, the positive or health-promoting bacteria which are already in there will pick on them and they will grow very, very well, very competitively. So you can change a person's gut flora within a day or two by giving them just about five grams of these compounds per day. And you can switch their flora around to be much more health-promoting. I think the kind of simple analogy is uh, really with a breastfed infant. A breastfed infant has bacteria called bifidobacteria at very high numbers, and these are very good targets for prebiotics. And the reason for that is that human milk contains compounds which stimulates them. And so the gold standard really is breastfeeding. They have far fewer infections than formula-fed infants, and I think that is because of their high levels of bifidobacteria, so the prebiotic effect that the breastfeeding induces. Now, most of us get some prebiotics every day in our normal diet, but not quite the advised five grams that Gibson talked about. There's been several studies now done in North America and Europe, and the diets in those two continents are actually fairly similar in terms of their prebiotic capacity. We get around about two to three grams per day each, and the main sources are onions, garlic, um, asparagus is good, artichokes, bananas are a very good source, chicory, uh, leeks are another good source. But two to three grams is probably not quite enough to make big changes in the flora, so we have to have a little bit more than that. And this is why the food industry is taking prebiotics out of these ingredients, which I just mentioned, and putting them into other foods which are which are eaten more frequently. So we're seeing prebiotics being fortified into breakfast cereals, into yogurts, into drinks, into breads and juices, things like this. You can also synthesize or make prebiotics in labs. You can get them naturally or you can make them. And it's very important that these prebiotics have a selective effect in the gut. You don't want the bad guys to grow up. You just want the goodies to, to respond to them. Now, back to Gibson's Smelly Lab. They're doing all sorts of experiments to test pre and probiotics. So when you go in the lab, you see all the types typical types of things you expect to see in a microbiology lab, you know, you 
pets and solutions, cabinets, agar plates, petri dishes. You know, you'd see people doing enzyme assays, people doing DNA extractions, people on microscopes, all this sort of thing. And then down the end of the end of the lab is a separate room which has models of the human gut in it. So lurking away right down one end of, of, of my lab is a room which has several models of the human GI gastrointestinal tract in them. So these bubble and gurgle away and they replicate different areas of the gut, mainly the large intestine, and we do tests on them. So we've got versions which, which simulate the infant gut, we've got versions which simulate the adult gut, elderly people's gut, people with irritable bowel, people who are obese, and being models of the gut, they don't answer back and <laughs> we can do pretty much what we want with them. So in all seriousness, we use them to plan human studies. Now, human studies are very expensive, so if you do a human study, you've got to increase your chances of succeeding at the hypothesis or the idea that you're testing. So we use our gut models to help us better plan the intervention, which really is the ultimate test of doing these studies in humans, the type of work that we do. So I, I think we've got these models, which, you know, they're fine. And when we put ingredients in there, uh, we see a particular effect. If that effect is replicated in humans, that's great. But if the effect is not replicated in humans, that's, you know, not, not a definitive answer. But to take that a little step further, if we see no effect in the model, well, then we wouldn't even do the human trial. Because something works in the model doesn't necessarily mean it will work in vivo, but if it doesn't work in the model, it almost certainly won't work in vivo. Gibson's research has some real applications, and ones that might surprise you. At the moment, we are working with high-level sports people, actually, whose career is could be very much compromised if they were to get a bout of gastroenteritis just when they're about to perform because that's not going to assist their performance by any means if not completely destroy it and so we um, we feel that this this whole approach in certain professions where you know avoiding gastroenteritis is is, is part of their job is probably as relevant as almost anything else we're also working with hospitals because people who are in hospital tend to have a compromised gut flora and we want to kind of fortify that against to counter counteract actually some of the the side effects of antibiotic use to me the average consumer pre and probiotics sound like a pretty good deal they don't seem to do any harm and they actually seem to do a lot of good so i asked glenn what the challenges of getting the research to the market are i think trying to get the understanding that not all not all bacteria are bad for us and only the very, very minority are, I think that's still a big marketing challenge. Also, I think making the food taste good, because if they taste horrible, people are probably not going to, probably not going to, to eat them. I also feel that both with pro and prebiotics, they have a very important role in preventing disease or reducing the risk of disease. So people who are healthy often think, well, hang on, I don't need this. I haven't got irritable bowel syndrome, I haven't got tummy ache or anything, so I'm fine, I, don't, I really don't need it. But because you haven't got these ailments today doesn't mean you won't get them tomorrow, next week, or sometime in the, in, in the future. So I think it's a way of actually building your defences such that if a problem does arise, you're better able to deal with it. And that might be food poisoning or it may be something more chronic like colitis. Karadak from Dannon agrees with Gibson. The main challenge that we're trying to overcome is probiotics and the benefits provided by probiotics are, uh, are still new to the U.S. consumer. We know that yogurt consumption is uh, fairly low, actually, in the United States compared to other countries. 
not only yogurt is not is underdeveloped, but also obviously probiotics. So that's new. It's an undeveloped market. So the the other big challenge, I can tell you, it's it's possible and actually uh, uh, quite feasible to make a very bad tasting probiotic food. You need to really work making sure that in your selection of the strains that you have and the processes that you use to make the you know to make the food, the fermentation process, etc need to make sure that the food, the, the finished food, is good tasting. And the third challenge that we have is to make sure that we communicate the benefit to consumers in a way that is very clear, very transparent, and that has a, a strong science back. If the science in this podcast hasn't turned you into a yogurt convert, check out the New York Academy of Sciences Conference on Probiotics, happening June 11, 2010. Visit www.nyas.org slash probiotics for more information. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a nonprofit program at the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support the Science in the City program today, Log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, if you have any feedback for our show here at Science in the City, shoot us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.